Yes, Jesus. Hallelujah. Which means we sing praises to our God. That's what we've done here this morning. Be lifted high, be exalted on the praises of your people. Jesus, you are worthy. We thank you for all that you've done. Your body broken for us. Your blood shed for us. We remember this morning and how fitting to begin our year together remembering how you laid down your life for us your friends who've now been made your family, your brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God because of you, Jesus. And Father, because of your kindness in sending us your Son, your one and only begotten Son, What a joy it is, Jesus, to begin our year praising you, exalting you, setting our affections on you. Now continue to work through your Holy Spirit in our hearts. As we begin to hear your word, we pray for Pastor Blake. Give him boldness and wisdom to proclaim your word with truth and grace and give us ears to hear and then Holy Spirit enable us to obey your word we thank you Jesus that that is your will for the Holy Spirit to guide us to obey what you have said, Jesus. So Jesus, it's in your powerful name that we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen. You can be seated as we continue in worship. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on uh, the first Sunday of 2024. So if you've been writing 2023, you got to fix that. 2024, a uh, whole new year. We survived the last one, moving on into the next. And we have no idea where we're going. We have no idea what God will do in the sense of God can kind of do whatever he wants, and we make our plans, and we have our thoughts of where we're going to go, what we're going to do, 
But if you've been walking with God for any season of time, you will know full well that quite often God takes you somewhere that I wasn't really planning on going here, but he brought me there anyway. So as we enter into 2024, as I was praying through where ought we to go this morning, the idea of into the unknown seemed fitting. So the passage we're going to be in this morning is John chapter 21. If you uh, have a copy of God's Word, either a paper copy or else on your phone, if you want to join me in John chapter 1, that's where we are going to be this morning. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm on the tail end of a cold and my cough is still lingering. So John chapter 21, context is basically this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the, the fullness of all those four Gospels, pretty much all of that has already happened, right? He's been born, he's been forgotten at the temple, which if you ever feel bad about your parenting, Mary and Joseph, three days to notice Jesus wasn't around. So, forgotten at the temple, grew up, started his ministry, did his ministry, healed the sick, and preached, and prophesied, and went to the cross, and died, and was buried, and rose again, right? The, the whole story of Christ that we know has already been played out pretty much by this point of the story where we are in John chapter 21, last chapter of the book of John. At this point, uh, Christ has already come back from the dead and shown himself to his disciples twice. And so now, (coughs) we pick up the story, John chapter 21, starting in verse 1, where it says this. Later, so this is after he had appeared to them a second time, it says, later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of his disciples were there. Simon, Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and the other two disciples. Or two, two other disciples. Don't know who they were, but two other guys. Verse 3, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll come with you too, they all said. So they went out into a boat, but caught nothing all night long. Now, Simon was a fisherman by trade. The idea of spending an entire night laboring in the craft he grew up with and getting nothing, that'd be a very frustrating, frustrating thing because these guys were not just going out of, you know what, I'm a little tired. I want to blow up some steam. I'm just going to go fishing and cast a line. Hope I catch something. Just relaxing. They're casting with nets. They're trying to not just catch one or two for fun or for sport or hobby. They're, They're trying to haul in a catch. And nothing and nothing all night. Well, this was not the job Peter was supposed to go back to. When Christ called Peter and his uh, brother away from the boats, way back at the beginning of the Gospels, this was their life. This was their job. And God had given them a new one. See, in the Last Supper, you have all the disciples, and they're hanging out with Jesus. And Jesus basically tells them in the book of John, hey, I'm not going to be here anymore. Pretty soon, I'm going to be gone. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait, people need to know about you. It's like, oh, they will, but through you. Because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and the ones who live with me, the ones who abide in me, the world basically is going to see who I am through you, is what he tells his disciples. Their job, their mission was to proclaim, display the truth of Christ, of who he is, the gospel. That was their life. That was meant to be their moving forward mission. And uh, they go back to what they did. Which would be basically this first point, if we want to move uh, the slide over, this first point is this. Going back to your old life, well, that gets you nothing, right? They've just spent so many years with Jesus. They spent so many years being taught, being trained, being, (coughs) excuse me, being brought up by the Messiah, So that when he went to the cross, died, came back, went up into heaven, that they would be equipped with the Spirit of God to then go out into the world. Now, at this point, the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. He hasn't come down upon them yet. But still, their job was not to go back to the life they knew. It was to move forward into the life that he had given them. 
But how many of us have come to Christ, have had this place where we like, yes, God, I am yours. And we have this new life. We have this new mission that has been given to us. But rather than moving forward into this new life, we start to go back. We take the step back, going back to what we know, going back to what's comfortable, going back to the life we once had. And I get it, because it can be tempting, right? Going into this life with Christ, going forward (coughs) with Christ can be a very uncertain thing on the earth. We don't know where he's going to take us. We don't know what he's going to do or what he's going to allow in our lives. The highs or the lows, it's, it's, it's very unknown. We don't know the future. But if you know Christ, you know who does hold the future, and you can know this and know this for certain, that if he has called you to it, he will lead you through it and bring you out the other side. And when it comes to the end, you will spend eternity with him. And what else do we really need to know? What else do we really need to know? Going back to our old lives will get us nothing. When it comes to going to Christ, there's no turning back. I think of back in Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You have Lot and his whole family, and they're being led away from a place of destruction, being led away from the life they had. And God says, hey, don't look back. And that works for most of them, but one does not listen to Lot's wife, and she looks back and pillar of salt. No turning back. We can't allow ourselves to. Now, I understand that we're human and we have issues and we have struggles and we have things. And there's things that pull at us trying to go back to the old self. Go back to the life before Christ. But that really cannot be an option. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. uh, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone, and the new life has begun, Galatians 2.20. In Galatians 2.20, it says this, the old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live this earthly bo- in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? The, the old is gone. We're supposed to be crucifying it, but yet we often want to pull that off the cross. And I I like that. It's more comfortable that way. It's more comfortable to live a life that's familiar than to live a life where I stand apart. It's more comfortable to go back to what I knew than to go into what's uncertain. We as humans, we have that fear. It's a natural fear. right? We often are not afraid of things we know. We're often more afraid of what we don't. Most common fear of children is what? A fear of the dark. They're not scared of the dark. The dark knows nothing. They're scared of the fact they can't see what might be in the dark. And I realize that realization might now make some of us afraid of the dark. But we're not scared of the darkness itself. We're scared of what we don't know and what we can't see in it. We're not scared of things we know. We're scared of the unknown. And I get it. But that's why as Christ followers, we have a leg up and an advantage over everyone else in the world. And that is this. They walk into a future of uncertainty that can never be known. But we walk into a future where the the future is known by the God who holds you, shapes you, loves you. And we walk into an eternity where our future is forever secure with Christ. We don't know what the life on this planet is going to hold. But we know that God holds us. And we don't need to turn back. Luke 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 62. But Jesus told them, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Well, what's that saying? What it's basically saying is this. If you are starting off after God, but then you're like, no, 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 I I, I don't think I want this. I'm going to go over here back to my stuff. It's like, well, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Well, Why? Because what you're saying is that, God, you're not enough. You're saying that, God, the the riches you promised, the grace you bestow, the mercy you lavish upon me. God, it's not enough. I I want my old stuff. Well, really? I mean, we don't often think of it like that. We don't think of it that bluntly, but that's what we're saying. 
That's what we're doing. We're saying, God, you promise that you will satisfy my soul. But yeah, I don't think that's true. So I'm going to go back to these other things. With God, there ought never to be a turning back. It says in <coughs> excuse me, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Uh, Dear brothers and sisters, Paul's writing. He says, I have not achieved it, but at the end, the perfection. But I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ, is calling us. we're, We're not going backwards to what was. We're pressing on forward to what ought to be which is Christ, who is our goal, who is what we are striving for. Now, I understand that this whole concept is one often preached, often talked about in churches. And so sometimes we check it out, or check out, and we tune out because it's like, well, I already know about this. Okay, so how are you doing with it? You know it. How is that going? Where in our life, we've just finished off 2023. Look back on this past year. How has God grown you, moved you from January 1 of 2023? And how are you now different January 2024? Are you different? Because if you have Christ, then you ought to be different. You ought not to be who you once were. Why? Because we have a God who is always shaping and working and sanctifying and changing his kids more and more into the image of Christ. So we know these things. But how are we doing it actually living, applying, walking with these things that says in Galatians chapter 4? Excuse me, Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. But you Gentiles knew God. You were, sl- or before you knew God, excuse me, before you knew God, you were slaves to these so-called gods that don't even exist. So now that you know God, or I should say now know that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual practices of this world? Now that we know God, now that we have this new life Why do we want to go back to the things that we know will leave us nothing but empty, nothing but regret? There will never be a time in your life where you choose to go backwards and are happy about it. It's just not going to come. But we deceive ourselves into thinking that it might. We deceive ourselves into thinking that if I just one more time... And that one more time turns into another and another and another and another and another. Because it never satisfies. The old life never can. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it tells us that God put eternity into the hearts of humanity. But made it so we cannot find it. There is an eternal longing in the soul of everyone who has ever, will ever walk this earth. And we are constantly trying to fill that longing for eternity constantly filling it. The problem is there's only one thing that can fill an eternal longing, and that is something that is eternal, but all that you know in this world is finite. Begins and it ends. This building, your life, your marriage, your children, everything you've ever encountered upon this earth is begins and ends. One thing that is eternal, only thing that is eternal, is God himself. So that longing we have for eternity, but made it so that we can never find it, that's intentionally that we look to the one place that can be satisfied. Not going back, but pressing on towards him. Now the story continues on. Verse 4. Chapter 21, verse 4, it says this. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see, see who he was. So he, Jesus, called out, Fellows, some of your translations will say children, Have you caught any fish? And the word their children actually would be uh, fairly appropriate considering most of these uh, disciples would have been under the age of 18. They would have been uh, teenagers. John at this point of uh, the story would have at the oldest been like 15 or could have been as young as 12. 
So the word children seems actually fitting. But they reply, no, verse 6. Then he says, throw out your nets under the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that's going to help. They're fishing all night long, casting net after net after net. No one thought, maybe we should try the other side. I'm sure that's going to help, right? I mean, if you're a fisherman, you know that if you're not catching anything, it's not going to help to throw it on the other side. You've got to go to another part of the lake. You've got to move on. But he's like, hey, try the other side. So they did. And they could not haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It's the Lord! And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for the work, and he jumped into the water and headed to the shore. Which, <coughs> back then, uh, when you went out fishing, uh, you usually did it uh, not wearing your clothes because these nets were cor- they would destroy your clothing. That's that little bit there. So he throws on his clothes and then jumps in the water, which makes sense. So he jumps in and he swims to the shore and the others stayed in the boat, verse 8, and they pulled uh, the loaded net to the shore and they're only about 100 yards away. Verse 9, when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. Now think about that for a moment. They've just spent all night fishing, caught nothing. Jesus is like, hey, other side, they do, and so many they can't bring it in. These strong, strapping young men can't pull the net up. And then they get to shore, and Jesus already has a little fish fry going on. And he calls them over, he's like, hey, come on, bring some of your fish. Well, they didn't need to. One, he already had it all prepared. He had breakfast ready, the fish and the bread was ready, but he still said, hey, grab your fish and bring them over. But if you notice the fish they had, where did it come from? They spent all night fishing nothing. The only fish they got was when he's like, hey, do this. And there's the catch. So he already has it prepared. And the fish he tells them to bring isn't even theirs to begin with. It's the fish he gave to them, the fish that he provided for them, which brings us to this next point, if you're filling in those blanks. The next slide, but next point basically says this, or is this. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. God doesn't need you, but he wants you, right? So this whole thing of not turning back to our old life, sometimes people put it in the sense and the framework of like, well, I mean, if you go back to your own life, how can God use you? God needs to you. No, he doesn't need you. He spoke a universe into existence. He didn't consult you. He breathed creation into life. What was your role? I was born. God doesn't need us, but he does want us. But I want, us, I want to drive this home a little bit. It says in Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah 10 verse 12, But the Lord made the earth by his power. He preserves it by his wisdom. With his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah 32, 17, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. What could we possibly do for God that he could not do for himself? Nothing. God doesn't need us. He didn't need them to bring the fish. He didn't need to give them fish. He had it all ready for them, but yet he still asked them to bring what he had already provided. Why? Because he doesn't need you, but he does want you. He does desire you, which I find even more amazing Right, like I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have had that person in our life where the only time you get a call, the only time you get a text is, hey, can you help me out? And if you have a truck, I'm sure it's very true. We all have those people or know that person who all they want from you is, can you help me? I only contact you. I only want you when I need you. With God, he never needs you. Yet he still wants you and wants to know you and be known by you and walk this life with you and do this life with you. He doesn't need you. 
So the relationship he has with you is solely because he desires for his pleasure to know you. For his glory to be displayed in your life as you delight in him. It says this in Psalm 24. Psalm 24 verse 1. The earth, all the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it belong to the Lord your God. Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. Haggai 2, 8. The silver and the gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's armies. What could we possibly give him that isn't his? All of the world belongs to him. Everything is his. Now, Psalm 104. I know this is a lot of scripture references, but I want to drive this home. Psalm 104. Verse 14, and then same chapter, verse 27 says this. In verse 14, you cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for people to use. You allow them to produce food. You allow them to produce food from the earth. They all depend on you to give them food as they need it. Psalm 50, verse 12, if I were hungry... I would not tell you why, for the whole world is mine and everything in it. It's kind of like if you're a parent, are you going to go up to your toddler and be like, I want dinner? No. Why? Because it's, it's your food. It's your house. You make it. You co- so if God needs something, he doesn't come to you. If he comes to you, it's because he desires you desires to use you, to, that you would see his glory displayed, that your faith would be grown, that your life would be transformed as you encounter and, and, and interact with the God of all things, the Lord of lords and King of kings. He doesn't need us, but he does want us. The story of Esther is one that's fairly well known. Right, You have this uh, Jewish girl growing up far from what home was meant to be. And this story unfolds that basically evil guy wants to destroy all of the Jews. And Esther is placed in this prime position. She has the king's heart. She has the king's ear. And she has the ability to speak up, to do something that would save her people. And at first she's scared. At first she's like, I don't know. But then her uh, Uncle Mordecai, cousin Mordecai, whatever, I think it's cousin. It's a little unclear how they would do to cousin, though. Verse 14, he says this. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. He's like, it doesn't really matter if you speak up. He's like, it doesn't really matter if you do this. There's going to be salvation for the Jews regardless of what you do. But he goes on. But who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Look, God has a plan and a purpose that he wants to use you for, absolutely. But do not be so arrogant as to suppose or think that if I don't, then it won't. The moment you have that thought is the moment you've crossed over into arrogance. Well, if I don't, then it won't. Well, if you don't and it won't, then it probably shouldn't. Because if God is going to do it, if God is working, then he's going to do it regardless. You can't stop it. You can't disrupt it. You can't even detour it. Your only choice is to go along with it or not. But it's not going to change what he does. It's not going to change the fact that nothing stops him. He's got it. And to me, that's actually a bit of a, like, relief. It's like, wait, wait, so it doesn't matter, like, all the times where I've messed up, God, it doesn't matter as far as your plan, you already got it. It's like, it's true. No matter how many times you've tripped, no matter how many times you've leapt into your sin, no matter how many times we constantly need to get back and repent and repent, God's like, I still want you. I still want you. I will still use you. I will still use you. Sometimes we get into this place where we feel like, oh, God doesn't want me. Or God, God's not going to use me. 
No, he is. The story of your life, the highs and the lows, all of it, God is faithful. And he will use all of it for his glory. So submit yourself to him and let him use it. Don't fight him on it. Go with him. Why? Not because it benefits God. He doesn't need it. But because it benefits you as you see God displayed, as you see him redeem the past and secure the future, as you see him plow forward through every obstacle, as he accomplishes his will, that will grow you and challenge you and change you in ways that you can't begin to understand. He doesn't need us, but he does want us. And that is to your blessing. That is to your benefit that he does. We thank, we praise God for that as the story continues on. So verse 11, Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, random number, but that's fun. And yet the net wasn't torn. Verse 12, now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them bread and fish. I love that. He makes it for them. He asks them to bring what the gifts he's already given to them. And then he just serves them. What a blessing it is to know that there is a God and King of this universe who has gifted you and equipped you wants to use you with what he's gifted you. And though he is king above all kings, still serves you. What? That's so weird and so backwards. And yes, it is. But doesn't serve you as though you're a master to him. Serves you out of love. Out of knowing that we need him. Love that. So as it continues on, Verse 14, this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. And then Jesus said a third time he had asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus had asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. It's such a simple exchange. It's three question or one question repeated three times. Repeated, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. But what's the response to each of Peter's replies? Well, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. Well, what was Peter's job? What was Peter's role? Christ said it to him many times. To proclaim the kingdom of God to proclaim who God is and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation. (coughs) But what does he do? Twice Christ has appeared. I'm here, I'm alive, and I'm going fishing. He's like, if you love me, do what I've asked you to do. I've told you to care for the people, to display the kingdom. And Peter's sitting there hearing this. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, yes, yes. Well, then do what I've asked of you. Do what I'm telling you to do, which is this next uh, thing. If you're taking notes, if you love God, you follow God. If you love him, you follow him. It's really that simple. You obey what he says. In John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 15, it says this, if you love me, obey my commands. Pretty straightforward. If you love God, you obey God. Period. First John 5, 
First John 5, 3, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. What does it mean to love God? It means you follow him and do what he's asked of you. You follow his commandments. Now, is that going to be perfect? No, I get it. I, I get it. We're not perfect, right? We're not. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. We're going to fall into sin, choose to sin, whatever. We're, gonna, we're not perfect. But look at your life. What's the mark of your life? Is it one who is growing in Christ, who's growing in their love and their affection for God and growing in their hate for the sin they once loved? Is your life marked by the sanctification, fancy church word, of the progression through this holiness of where I was to who I am in Christ? What is your life marked by? Can you look back over the last five, ten years of your life and see where God has changed you? If you can't, that ought to be a very large red flag for you. Because he's working in his kids. He's changing, transforming. If you love God, you follow him. I get not perfectly, but faithfully, increasingly. The way in which we follow and love Christ today ought to be more faithful than it was last year, last decade, last century for those of us who've been that blessed. (laughs) As God continues to grow and use us, we follow him. Those who love him will keep his commands. It's really that simple. There's people who claim Christ. They claim to follow him. They claim to love him. But then the evidence of their life, there's nothing. And then there are other Christians who have the audacity to look at that life and say, well, I mean, they say they're Christians, so they're good, right? Or, or I mean, I guess they prayed a prayer and accepted Jesus into their hearts. You guys know that there's nowhere in the Bible where it says, ask me into your heart and I most certainly will come. You know, that's not a verse. But what the Bible does say is by faith, follow God, love God, repent of your sin. That's what marks a Christian. Not that you've prayed a prayer, not that you've been baptized, not that you've been confirmed, not that you've done the religious church hoops, but that you follow and love him. If that is absent, then all the other check marks don't matter. You could have read through the Bible every year from the time you were 12 to the time you're 80. And what an amazing blessing it is to have been able to do so. But if that time in the word hasn't changed you, if that hasn't drawn you deeper into love with God, what are you doing? by that fruit of someone's life that they know that, that we know whether they follow God, which is why if you follow God, that's how we know if you love God. Now there's a difference, right, between following him, loving him, and religiously obeying every rule. Because there are people that are great rule followers. Great rule followers. Firstborns tend to be good rule followers. But it's not about if you're a rule follower. It's not about if you check the standards of Christianity. Oh, I don't swear. I don't drink. I don't this. I don't that. Look at me. I'm such a good Christian. No. Well done. Are you loving the least of these? Are you serving the broken? Are you reaching into the community around you that they would see Christ in you? Are you displaying the kingdom of God as you live your life? Christianity is more than a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's about, God, I love you, and the world needs to know you, and therefore my life is being lived on purpose for you. If you love him, do what he's called you to do. And that means so much more than a silly little checklist that we like to make as Christians. I went to church every week. I didn't miss a single Sunday. I'm so proud of you. Here's a sticker. 
But when's the last time you shared Christ? When's the last time you spoke of the gospel boldly? When is the last time when there was someone broken and hurting, you were by their side, not out of obligation, but out of a desire to shower the love of Christ upon them? When was the last time your heart was so burdened you needed to spend time and time and minutes and hours on your knees in prayer? When is the last time you looked at a world broken and lost and in desperate need to know the Savior that has come and your heart has wept for that? Loving and following God is so much more than the checklist of things. It's having his heart. It's pursuing his will. Well, what's the will of God for my life? I mean, we can get into the, all the dynamics of all what that means, but boil it down, it's simply this. The will of your life, God's, God's will for your life is this. Love him, obey his word. You do that, you're good, I promise. He'll lead you where he wants you to go. Love him, obey his word, you're good. Now, I'm not saying this as though I've nailed it. Right? I, I don't remember going to nail that. By God's grace, I'm growing, and I'm growing, and year by year, I need to get on my knees day by day, moment by moment. God, I'm yours. God, I'm sorry for where, for where I've, I've abandoned you. I'm sorry for where I've deviated from what you called me to. I'm sorry for where my life has not displayed you. God, I repent of that and, and change me and cause me to be obedient to you. I understand that that can be a terrifying prayer. God, God, make me obedient to you. Because that means, if you're obedient to God, that means you're going to be giving up some things that you might not want to give up. That means you're going to be walking away from some things that aren't inherently bad that you don't want to walk away from. But is the riches and glories of knowing Christ worth that? Is it worth that? As we keep going on in the text, verse 18... Jesus is still talking to Peter, and he says, In truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And Jesus told him, follow me. The death he's implying, your arms will be stretched out. He's telling him, you're going to be crucified for me. You're going to the cross. You're going to die. That's the news that he just dropped on Peter. Well, I don't know if I really want that. Well, no one wants that. Right? Jesus went to the cross not because he thought it was a good time for a Friday night. No one wants that. But it comes down to this. Is Christ worth it? is the insurpassable joy of eternity with God and heaven. Him as king forever on display for eternity. Is the relationship with God, is that worth whatever he may call us to on this earth? Because sometimes Christians have this weird idea that, well, if God really loved me, then he wouldn't let me go through this. He let Christ be crucified. You think God didn't love him? He let his prophets and his disciples be slaughtered and martyred. You don't think he loved them? God never promised you're not going through hard things. He actually promised the opposite. He says you will go through hard things. It says in John chapter 16, he, he has this whole thing in the upper room with them, and he says, I have told you all these things so that you may have peace in me. Here on this earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart because I have overcome this world. It's like you're going to have so many trials and sorrows. There will be suffering on this earth. Why? Because sin is on this earth. Sin is in every one of us. Therefore, where sin is present, there will be suffering. And there will be problems. And there will be darkness. But where Christ is present... There will be joy 
and there will be strength and there will be light in the darkness and there will be a God who carries you through every step of it. Is that enough for us? Because there may be times where he calls you to do something that you just don't want to do. I doubt Peter wanted this. As a matter of fact, I'm confident of it as we keep going on in the text. It says in (coughs) verse 20, Peter turned around after Jesus had said this, and he saw, uh, he turned around, and uh, following them was the disciple that Jesus loved, was John, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper, the last supper, and asked, Lord, who will betray you? And in verse 21, Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? I mean, that's so us, right? All right, you're going to have to do something. You're not going to like it. Well, what about him? Like, think about yourself as a kid. Mom and dad tell you, all right, you're going to have to be punished now, or you're going to, maybe not punished, but maybe you're going to have to go wash the car. What about him? Why do we have to wash the car? And he doesn't have, what about him? We do that with God all the time. God, why did you bless him? Why is my life not like that? God, why am I going through this and they're not? It's so human. So human. Verse 22, Jesus' reply. If I want him, if I want John to remain until alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, you follow me. No, he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't tell Peter what will happen to John. He doesn't tell him anything about that. He's like, why does it matter? You follow me. The blessings God has done for others I understand why we want them because of God's blessing, I mean, I want blessings. The trials he allows in our life, I understand we don't like them. But ultimately, God has allowed into your life what he has chosen to allow. He has blessed, he has brought about what he has desired. What are you going to do with that? Will you be faithful through the storm? Or will you whine? the whole way through. Because you know what, loved ones, this life is not about you. It's not about you. Well, why me? Wrong question. Wrong question. Because every time you want to ask the question, why of God? Why this? Why now? Why me? Any of those questions you want to ask of God, the answer is literally always the same. That God would be glorified. Always the same answer. That God would be glorified. So the question of why me now, whatever, wrong question, unhelpful question. Question we ought to ask is, okay, God, what do you want me to do through this? How do I glorify you through this? How do I display you to others as I walk this road? That's the question we ask. Why? Because that's the question of someone whose heart loves him, trusts him. So God, I don't know what you're doing but I know you're always working, so God, I'm going to be a part of it. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to waste this opportunity. Oh God, when the, when the blessings come, when the storm comes, God, either way, I don't want to waste this opportunity to declare to the world who you are. And truthfully, it's when we go through the darkest times that we have the loudest microphone to proclaim God's glory. You walk around and life's good, and you're like, God is so good. Everyone's like, of course you think that. Look at your life. You've got the house, the car, the kids. You've got what you want. You've got everything. But when you're in the hospital watching over your child. But when you're at the graveside mourning your spouse. But when you are sitting at the pile of notices and you're like, God, I don't know. I I can't pay this. And you still say, but God, you're good. And I I don't know what you're doing with this. I don't know where you're taking me. I don't know. I don't know. But God, I know you're good. And I will continue to declare that, God, you are good because you walk with me and you strengthen me. And, God, I can't get through this any other way except by you. And then people hear those words. God is still good. No matter where he takes us into this year. God, I will trust you. I will follow you. Why? Because I love you. And I know wherever you take me, you will display yourself as I am faithful to you. 
And if that is your heart, I praise God for that. And if that is not your heart, then you and Jesus have some work y'all need to do. Because my life isn't about me. If you're a Christ follower, your life's not about you anymore. This life on earth has nothing to do with your successes and failures. It has everything to do with there's a God on display. There is a, a gospel that must be preached. There are souls that need, this, the need their lives altered, their eternities changed. There are those in desperate need of the Savior that has come. That's what this is about. That souls would know Christ. That sinners would become saints. That the glory of God would forever be shown. And when we get trapped in, well, I don't like this. You're going to be very useless in the kingdom of God. But when your life is marked by God, whatever you want. I know it's a dangerous prayer. But when your life is marked by God, whatever you want. Watch what he will do. You will get to the end of life and you will be amazed at the things that he has done as you look back and trace the fingerprints of God through your story. And some of the things you're not even going to see, right? Some of the things you're not even going to get to. How many times in the Old Testament God made promises to people? He's like, but you're not going to see it. This is for later. This is for later. This is for later. So many times, sometimes you're not going to see the full, excuse me, the fullness of it at the end. But God is always faithful. He is always faithful. I forgot to give you this last point, but that last point that we've just been talking about is we follow God no matter where he leads. We follow him no matter where he leads. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, there is so much that you have done for us that we don't even know. We're not even aware of all the ways that you've blessed and given and provided. But God, what we do see, what we are aware of, is more than enough to thank you, is more than enough to surrender to you. You've given us life and salvation and hope. God, the joy and blessing of the love that comes from relationship with you. God, that is more than enough for me to say, I will trust you and I will follow you. And God, I'm sorry for the times I don't trust you. I'm sorry for the times I wander off and foolishly plow into my own devices and distractions and plans. God, I pray that you grant me, grant this church the blessing of forever being obedient to you because that is where we find joy. That is where we find the satisfaction of our souls is when we walk with you, delight in you. So God, grow our love, grow our obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stay in loved ones and respond.